Welcome to ScotsCast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scots Church, Melbourne. It is every soccer player's nightmare to score an own goal, especially at a deciding moment. But it happens more often than you'd think. Jamie Pollock was playing for Manchester United in the second last game of the Premier League season, uh, the team on the verge of relegation. Late in the game, the scores were even. Jamie intercepts the ball. He flicks it up and heads it back in the direction of his goalkeeper. Except that it flies right over the goalkeeper's head and into the goal. Queen's Park Rangers won. Manchester United were relegated. And QPR fans named Jamie Pollock, not just man of the match, but the most influential man of the last 2,000 years, including Jesus. Or maybe an overstatement, but own goals can be disastrous. We, we come this morning to this short passage in Acts chapter 6. We've been following a string of stories about the earliest days of the church in Jerusalem. On the one hand, growing remarkably as people come to faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ. But about to score an own goal. We've seen them in the last two chapters facing opposition, which Luke, our author, says is orchestrated by the devil himself. Chapter 5, you might remember, we saw deceit. A couple who could have pioneered hypocrisy as a hallmark of the church. Then we saw duress, the high priest and his council arresting the apostles and beating them and ordering them not to speak in the name of Jesus, which of course they ignore. Now you're in chapter 6. Division breaking out. A discord among church members over a very practical problem. This is the very real possibility of an own goal. I mean, what a self-inflicted disaster it is when a church divides, turns on itself. To which I would add a fourth danger. And that is the danger of distraction. It's all because of the dynamic growth of the church. These are, in a sense, growing pains. You'll remember we saw in the last few chapters how everyone in the church was sharing their possessions. Nobody had any need. They would bring their offerings to the apostles who'd share it round where it was needed. But what happens when those needs grow? What happens when your church numbers more than 5,000 people and the needs get bigger and bigger and bigger? What happens when you've got different racial and language groups in the church and there's a rumour of favouritism? At our Flemington mission, we give out food parcels every Tuesday and experience shows that it's really important that all the food parcels 
have exactly the same stuff in them. Because human nature being what it is, if she gets five carrots and her friend only gets two carrots, it's not long until the complaints come. Now, same thing here in verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, the Hellenists, they are Greek speakers. They lived their lives in dispersion around the the Greek-speaking world. And many, apparently, with Jewish roots, always dreamed of retiring back to their motherland. And of course, husbands being what they are, they so often predeceased their wives, leaving them unsupported. Widows. Of course, there are local widows as well, the Hebrew speakers. And rightly or wrongly, the Hellenists, the Greek speakers, are convinced that their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution coordinated by the apostles. And look again, the problem is it's all got so big so fast. So there's the complaint, more of an undercurrent, a grumbling. Words out that the long-time locals are getting favourable treatment, that the Greek-speaking widows are being left out because... Nobody really cares about them. And so verse 2, the 12, the apostles, they call a full church meeting. They summon the full number of the disciples, which at last count a chapter or two ago is 5,000. But since then, we've been told more and more and more have been added. The apostles gather everybody and they propose a radical solution. Here's what they say. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. Now, it's interesting if you're someone perhaps with Baptist background or maybe Church of Christ, where there is a long tradition of appointing deacons, that tradition is often traced all the way back to this passage. And there are plenty of Presbyterian churches who do that as well. The interesting thing, in a technical sense, though, is that the diakonos word in the original Greek, which literally means to serve... It is used three times in our passage, two of them in this verse. Although in each case, it's used not as a title, but simply an action. Serving. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, who will appoint to this duty, but we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. Clearly highlighting there, there are two ways of serving the church. Again, not used so much as a job title at this point. It's just stating a fact that some people are going to serve one way, others are going to serve another way. 
And the apostles, who were very specifically commissioned by Jesus, they know that he didn't actually appoint them to be coordinating the food bank, but to be spreading the word. Even though to this point they've been trying to do the food bank as well, they're obviously not doing it very well, which is not only splitting the church, but splitting their focus. So they say, pick someone else to serve the tables and we'll devote ourselves to prayer and service of the word. We will serve that way. And you, you pick some other guys to do the food stuff. Which, by the way, isn't deprecating it at all, but simply delegating it because it is important. Just highlight verse 3 for a moment. You'll notice they need to choose their best. Not just good managers, but full of the Spirit and wisdom as well. This is an important word. Choose them for appointment to this duty, so the apostles, which that word duty literally is this necessary task. Because you see, being a practical, caring church is not optional. It is necessary. Now, I've mentioned before that Luke, our author, is writing this book of Acts as a sequel to his famous gospel. And of the four gospel writers, Luke is the one who most keenly records the teaching of Jesus himself about the importance of caring for the poor, and especially widows, which the scribes and the Pharisees and the Jewish leadership have notoriously failed to do. In fact, the opposite. They take everything when they should be giving. Here's what Jesus said to them. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you'll receive the greater condemnation. Which means, of course, among other things, they're going directly against the views of God himself in the Old Testament, who said from the very start, his people Israel were meant to be the people who cared for the weak and the poor. Exodus 22, our first reading. Remember God says to Israel, be careful. He says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Because the Most High God cares for the most lowly. So you see, for a church to care well, for a church to put efficient care systems in place, for a church to actually organise to love well, it's not an afterthought. It is actually, in the words of the apostles, a necessary task. It's just that it's too important to leave to the apostles themselves with the other necessary task that they've got, which is to focus on the word ministry 
as the ones commissioned to be the public witness of the resurrection of Jesus, calling people to recognise his rightful lordship, which of course is done by word of mouth, by their preaching in the temple courts, by their teaching the church, leading the church in prayer together. And the church needs to do both. Now that's an issue that's been, in a sense, an evangelical theological tension. I know churches that map it out as if both of those options are, in a sense, on the same axis, pulling against each other. I guess there is a tension if you're leaving it to just one kind of leader in the church. That you've got word ministry on the one side, you've got care on the other. And it's like they're in conflict. So if you prioritise one, you lose out on the other. Ideally, it's more like a, a quadrilateral, two axes. Care and word, not opposites. Though there's still potentially a degree of tension. There are, in fact, four different ways you could do the mix. And so you get churches and Christians who'll say, well, we should care, but we're not going to talk about Jesus because that's off-putting. Or else, you know, to keep our government funding, we need to keep quiet about our faith. Or it's too theoretical. Or without articulating any of that, you might just say, well, let's just love people and let our actions do the talking for us. And look, the reality is a whole lot of really effective care has been done by organisations like that. The Wayside Chapel in Sydney, famous. Even the Salvos, until they consciously changed direction about 20 years ago when they realised people had forgotten they were actually a church. I see there's a reaction to that, which just because some people have thrown the baby out with the bathwater, I'd say, don't risk bathing the baby. They have all word and no care. And I know there are some churches that quite deliberately say that's their position. But I'll say, well, you heard what the apostles said in Acts 6. We're not here to wait on tables. We need to prioritize the word. So here's a 45-minute sermon, and we're not going to be distracted by caring for practical needs because spiritual needs are so much more important. Which misses the point, by the way, that apparently the apostles themselves were waiting on tables until the church hit 5,000 members. Okay, so no one's going to be all that attracted by quadrant number three, which is care way down low and word way down low. Unless, of course, it's a church where the rock music is really good or there's some other attraction. As always with a good quadrant diagram, the sweet spot is the top right-hand corner. Because why can't you have both? That's what the apostles are saying. And everyone agrees with them. In fact, why don't we max it out and aim for the very top corner with the apostles proclaiming Jesus loud and clear and add this crack team of care coordinators, making sure we're actually doing what Jesus says to do and caring well for our widows and orphans.
no matter what their racial background. Let's put our big red dot right in the top right-hand corner and aim for maximum proclaiming Jesus and maximum care, which you see is exactly what they do. And so the church gets together and they put forward seven names. Oddly, it's been observed all Greek names, which might just be a coincidence, or it might mean that they're trusting men from the Greek-speaking community to look after the whole project and redress the past imbalance. Either way, they bring forward Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, absolutely qualified, as well as Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Pyomenus and finally Nicholas from Antioch, who'd converted to Judaism and now he's converted again to become a disciple of Jesus. And the apostles, they pray and they lay hands on them. They're publicly endorsed with apostolic blessing and authority to do the work of caring for the church and to do it well. In the end, it's not an own goal at all. Potential division healed. Better than that, look at the results in verse 7. The word spreads, increases. The number of disciples multiplies greatly. Even, get this, in spite of the opposition from their boss, the high priest, a great number of the temple priests are jumping ship and joining in and becoming obedient to the faith. Which, to be honest, must have caused a total uproar in the temple locker room. Did you hear? Another one gone. Think, think of the people least likely to come to faith these days. I don't know, ABC journalists maybe. A great many of them turning to the faith when they encounter a church that both proclaims Jesus clearly in word, but also gets really serious about putting his word into action and loving one another, not just in theory, but in practice. Now, to finish, I wonder if it's worth making just a few general observations about the passage. Traditionally, of course, it's taken as a model instance of why a church should have deacons. Although, again, while there's a whole lot said about diaconia meaning service, it's not ever at this point used as a title. Uh, so maybe there are some wider principles at work we could look at as well. Like this one. When there's dangerous division in the air, wise leadership is adaptive. I was speaking to my colleague Dave Thurston the other day. Dave runs post-ordination training for young graduate ministers in Queensland with an aim of teaching them some practical leadership skills. And Dave says, lesson one that he draws from this passage, for a church to grow, sometimes things need to change. It's easy to gloss over, but this is actually a profound change in governance for that early church. And while their problems have come from growth, that growth is going to stall if they don't take notice. 
and adapt what they're doing. That's what they do. Who says churches can't change? My friend Dave Thurston says there is a leadership masterclass in the way the apostles listen non-defensively to the concerns. Not saying, do what we say, we're the apostles, but listening to the feedback and moving into action to avoid an own goal. Then there's the wisdom that comes from distributed decision-making, which we Presbyterians, I'd have to say, have kind of mastered because we have committees for absolutely everything. Then there's the willing and deliberate and public release of authority by the apostles with the commissioning. So in the end, priorities are maintained and the church moves forward. Still focused, caring well, proclaiming Jesus' will, and growing strong with the right kinds of people in the right roles. In the end, it's not the, not the story of an own goal at all, but a story of great goal-keeping by the fleet-footed apostles. Now, friends, something I love about being part of Scott's church, we have, I think, got the resources, in a sense, and the systems in place to care well. There is a generosity of spirit in our giving. There is a practical compassion in our care systems, led by Lita and the pastoral care team. If you want to call them deacons, maybe you can, and you've only got a call. Care will be there. Our board of management and our trustees, I've seen them in action actively looking for ways to help. And not to mention our team at Flemington Mission. And at the same time, importantly, we get on with that parallel priority of publicly proclaiming Jesus in word and prayer and song every way we can. And here's the thing. I would love one day to be able to make that same kind of report about Melbourne, wouldn't you? That the word of God, the call to follow the Jesus who calls us to care for the broken, that word increasing, the number of disciples of Jesus multiplying greatly in Melbourne as more and more people, ABC reporters, skeptics, politicians of every persuasion, astonishing thought. See how we care, and because of that, consider again the claims of Jesus. You've been listening to Scott's Cast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scott's Church, Melbourne.